invited this week's speaker, and we'll introduce Dr. Burke. Morning, everyone. Thanks. I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Brian Burke. Dr. Burke did his undergraduate education at Baylor University, and he then did all of his pediatric tra medical training, so medical school residency and, yes, chief residency, correct, at the University of Arkansas Medical Center. He then served in private practice in rural Arkansas for a number of years and then joined the faculty at Michigan State, where for a number of years he was there. And he was telling us a story last night about how they asked him if he would be a hospitalist back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure, if you tell me what it is, I'd be happy to do it. So um, he was an early hospitalist running the inpatient service there. He also served there as clerkship director for almost 10 years, as well as section chief for general academic peds at Michigan State. Went back to Arkansas, where he is now a full professor. He is the director of the newborn nurseries through the well, the well nursery and their level two special care nursery. And that's how I know Dr. Burke is from the newborn interest group. He also has a career in telemedicine and is on the executive committee of the AAP section on telemedicine. And so I asked him to come give the newborn myths talk because it is one of my favorites of a great combination of evidence-based medicine and common sense. So there are a lot of things that we do in the nursery that don't necessarily have an evidence base or that when I send people to go and find it, they realize how uh, scant it might be, but we just do it that way. So I'm hoping to get us a little bit uh, into maybe we just don't do it that way. Maybe we should know why we do it that way or know what's behind why we do it that way or understand a little bit more about why we do it that way. So um, very happy to have Dr. Burke with us. And he is, uh, to me, you know, a great role model for those of us who consider ourselves, I know you think of me as a hospitalist, but from the general academic pediatrics background, who's really done all those different things that you can do with a general pediatrics career in academic medicine. So Dr. Burke. I can see you better. Thank you. Are you sure that's a wise move? The, uh, I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be here today. I uh, was honored to receive the invitation uh, anyway, and I've been in New Hampshire for 20 hours. It's my first visit, and I've had a smile on my face since I arrived here. I don't know why. I don't know why, if it's the little red Fiat 500 that I got to drive here through the mountainous <laughs> roads. I, I don't know if it's because everything I see just makes me think of my eighth grade American history textbooks. Uh, and obviously it's not your state's most beautiful uh, period of time, but yet it is still beautiful. It's no telling how pretty this place is when it's really putting itself on as a, as a wonderful show. Uh, I've gotten to, had a wonderful supper last night with Steve and Jim and Shoeen and Bonnie. Uh, Allison, uh, I've got to eat a maple bacon profiterole, I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, which if you've not had the joy of this, perhaps this is a New Hampshire thing, I, I don't know, but it is maple syrup, small pieces of thick cut bacon, vanilla ice cream, all put on top of a puff pastry. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, if New Hampshire has no reason for its existence other than this dessert, then I'm, I'm very happy that you guys are a part of the union. 
now, this talk that I'm about to give you, I, I'm sitting here listening that, you know, the, the great renal doctor of the world is to be here next week, and you've got an old boy from South Arkansas that is, is not going to present nearly as learned a discussion uh, as, as what he will probably do. Uh, I have uh, put together perhaps more learned uh, grand rounds, but I haven't put one together that's more fun for me, uh, and some of the audiences to which I've spoke have felt that way too, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I don't have anything to disclose. Uh, you don't become a pediatrician to get rich. <laughs> Unlike these guys in upper left, we've got Shylock and then uh, Scrooge and um, the guy from Wall Street, Gordon Gecko and Mr. Potter. And of course, all of them are, are renowned for being wealthy and greedy. And by the way, uh, I'll give you a very short 60-second grand rounds on telemedicine. <laughs> Wall Street came out in 1987. It was the, the movie with Gordon Gecko. It was the first time I had ever seen a cell phone. Now, 87, 97, 2000, that was 30 years ago, and I had never seen a cell phone. Now, think about that, particularly if you're a young doctor in training. Can you imagine, some of you aren't even 30 years old. Can you, can you imagine a life where a cell phone did not exist? It would, goes without saying that we all have a cell phone. How could we practice without one? Telemedicine will be that way, and it won't take 30 years for it to get there. We're very active in that at Arkansas Children's Hospital. And if you want to talk about that sometime, uh, I'm your man. All right, we're going to start out with a case presentation. Pardon the wordiness of this first thing. R.A. is a 12-year-old boy, 40 weeks of gestation, who was born to a mother with no risk factors. He delivered vaginally. Everyone was happy. You see the mother uh, the next morning, and she tells you that while she intends to breastfeed exclusively, somebody from the nursery told her that she ought to give the baby some formula until your breast milk comes in and the child is healthy. The next morning, he's 36 hours old. He's still a healthy-looking baby, but he's yellow. You get a bilirubin. It's 15. You begin uh, phototherapy, and someone suggests that you need to start an IV so that you can enhance the secretion of bilirubin. And you also temporarily stop his breastfeeding so that his bilirubin level will come down more quickly. The mother uses a breast pump until she starts refeeding. Two days later, the baby is ready to go home. And the mother asks you about his diet, and you, being a passionate breastfeeding advocate, say that breastfeeding is complete nutrition and nothing else will need to be given the baby until the baby is four to six months of age. And so how many of you saw the four common management errors that were given, uh, written into this case presentation? Well, common knowledge can be wrong. Sherlock Holmes never said, elementary, my dear Watson. Passionate Sherlock Holmes fan, the first gift my wife ever gave me was the complete works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In Casablanca, Ilse Lund never said, play it again, Sam, my favorite movie. Whales and dolphins are not fish, they are mammals. Irregardless is not a word. So when you hear someone say that and they said, I'm going to town irregardless, they've made as much sense as saying, I'm going to town quaffin' puffin' zillin' snoo. You know it? And then Sherbet does not have an R after the second E. Now, this may be confined to Arkansas and Michigan. I don't know. Perhaps you guys don't do this in New Hampshire. But it's very common to say, you know, I sure do like lime sherbet. <laughs> and, and, and you can only do that if you're Brett Favre. You know, I've never figured him out. It's F-A-V-R-E. It should be Favre. You know, it, it should not be Favre. But you have to be from that school of pronunciation. 
Well, common medical knowledge can be wrong too. You know, Galen bled people to get rid of evil humors, and we did that for over a thousand years. Purgatives, you know, it doesn't matter what's the matter with you. If you can get somebody to have a bowel movement, you're going to make them better. <laughs> Carter's little liver pills. Only the older ones of you will know this, but back in the mid-20th century in America, it was a great fad uh, that if something was the matter with you with nebulous symptoms that cannot be teased out like you might find with chronic fatigue syndrome or that type of thing, people went into the doctor because their liver needed toning up. And Carter's little liver pills came out so that you could stimulate your liver. Uh, the correct spelling of the stool test for occult blood is guayac, six letters, four consecutive vowels. I see it misspelled all the time. And prophylactic antibiotic therapy for recurrent otitis media, it's hard for you guys in an age of antibiotic resistance to believe this, but in the 80s we were taught that you should put children on a dose of prophylactic antibiotics to prevent them from getting PE tubes. And the main thing we did, I think, was to select out resistant organisms. Well, Mark Twain is also one of my favorite authors, and he said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know that just ain't so. And if you need a good laugh today, one of my favorite chapters in literature is chapter five of Tom Sawyer entitled The Pinch Bug. If you've never read the book, well, shame on you. But <laughs> even if you, uh, if you have read the book, I can read chapter five of Tom Sawyer and laugh out loud any time that I want to do so, and it has not a mean word or thought. Formula supplementation of breastfed newborns. Well, it is reasonable, but only for a very few things. If they're hypoglycemic and you don't have access to some other form of oral sugar, uh, and of course, from donor breast milk to different various things can be used. Uh, but the most common thing across the country would be a bottle of formula. Weight loss of at least 10%, and that isn't as serious as we used to believe it to be. It isn't ever reasonable because my milk hasn't come in yet. It, ever, it is not reasonable because the baby doesn't seem satisfied. And, you know, and I try very hard to tell parents that that's how babies were designed. They know they aren't satisfied, but that's what drives them back to the breast, and that's what's going to make your breastfeeding successful, and it's really a very marvelously coordinated system that we don't need to be messing up with a bottle of formula. Uh, and mothers are advised, embarrassingly often, by medical personnel, I don't believe my partners do this, but and I don't know I don't know if it's the person who cleans up the room or the nurses or, or, or who it is, uh, and I want to believe that 99% of the time it's the grandmother, but I'm afraid that sometimes it's us uh, who tell them to do this, and it's bad when it comes from the family and friends. It's just awful when it comes from us, and. Uh, Everybody's quite clear about that. You don't need to give the baby any food or drink except breast milk. Um, when I was in 1977, when I was a junior medical student, and up until the last year or two, uh, I practiced by the aphorism that if a baby had lost 10% of their weight, especially if they were a breastfeeding baby, that you needed to be worried. Um, and there was the fear of dehydration of hypernatremia, uh, hyperbilirubinemia, 
And, uh, but some recent data has come out in January 2015. Uh, Flareman showed that by 48 hours of age, 5% of vaginal deliveries and 10% of C-section deliveries lose 10% of their body weight. And it's even more than that. If you go out to 72 hours of age, 25% of C-section babies lose 10% of their birth weight. And they think that the reason C-section babies lose more is, of course, they don't get the squeeze as they come through the birth canal, so they're born with more water in their lungs, transient to get me in the newborn, all those sorts of things. And there's actually a NEWT nomogram, newborn estimated, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting what NEWT stands for. But at any rate, it monitors your weight loss and your trajectory. And of course, you do need clinical correlation, uh, but 10 to 25% of healthy newborns have not lost too much weight. And so maybe we're being a little too reactionary saying 10%. I mean, obviously, if the mother is only putting her baby to the breast every eight hours and things like that are going on and the baby's down 10% weight loss, that's a different clinical situation than if the baby's 48 hours old, mom feels that her breast milk really started flowing well last night, she's breastfed her last three babies successfully, and uh, the baby's had six wet diapers in the last 24 hours, 10% in that set. Uh, would not be nearly as bad. Um, this one isn't done so much anymore. This is more historical. But uh, when I was in my residency, it was taught that you should start an IV so that the babies did not get dehydrated. And of course, that's wrong on any number of levels. It's painful, it's expensive, it's more dangerous. And in fact, it's inferior because if you provide the hydration through the gut, you get the gastrocolic reflex. The bilirubin that was in the intestine is now out in the diaper. And uh, you'll lower the bilirubin level more quickly. Uh, breastfeeding jaundice babies who need who need phototherapy uh, interrupt breastfeeding. When I was a resident, especially at the two-week visit, we were taught that uh, if a baby is jaundiced uh, and maybe it's just from the chest up, uh, so they're just mildly jaundiced and they're a healthy two-week-old baby, uh, you could either get a bilirubin level and stop the breast milk for 48 hours and then get another bilirubin level and it would plummet. Or if you wanted to be more clinical, you could see how jaundiced the baby looked two days from now. Uh, but it was a cheap, economical, cost-effective way to practice medicine. I went into practice and did that for about six months. And the main thing that I did was to decrease the breastfeeding rate in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. <laughs> but the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics said it was a fine thing to do, and in fact, it's what you should do. Well, of course, now the AAP recommends breastfeeding. It does still give you, in the statement, the option of interrupting it for 24 to 48 hours. This is personal opinion, but the only time I stop breastfeeding now is if I think there's a possibility that the baby made in an exchange transfusion today. Uh, their level is so high, I'm, I'm worried about that concern. Otherwise, uh, there's no situation that I can think of that I think it's reasonable to stop breastfeeding just for jaundice. Um, the, um, yeah, well, I covered that. And, and I found that my own subjective experience in practice is about I could convince about half of the mothers that I had told to interrupt their breastfeeding to go back to breastfeeding. <clears throat> they would trust me. The, uh, the other half would say something to me, well, there must be something wrong with my breast milk or something like that. By the way, 
I got this water today before I came here for this eventuality, and I went into your store, and you've got probably a dozen different varieties of water, but I bought this one intentionally because it's smart water. <laughs> and, and I thought perhaps I was supposed to be smart today, and then it got me to thinking, what is dumb water, you know? <laughs> Uh, is that water that freezes and goes to the bottom of the lake? I, I, I don't know. But at any rate. Uh, and then breast milk is complete nutrition for a healthy newborn. Well, of course, it almost is. Uh, but nothing in life is perfect, and neither is breastfeeding. And we should be giving babies vitamin D, and not just the breastfed babies, but the bottle-fed babies, too. And uh, hopefully we're starting that at discharge from the nursery. And I, I don't know about you, but I still have people that are passionate about breastfeeding that think I'm a little anti-breastfeeding because I go by the academy statement that somehow or another I'm denigrating the virtue of breastfeeding. Um, I, I certainly don't want to do that, but some people I think um, have taken their breastfeeding advocacy a step too far if they don't want to do vitamin D. And then vitamin K. Uh, you know, you go, you're in the nursery, and the, the typical situation is they don't want the erythromycin ophthalmic, they don't want the hepatitis B vaccine, and they don't want the vitamin K. Well, you know, uh, if you and your wife have been faithful to each other always, and I'm 42 years, and I believe I, on both parts I can still say that, yeah, it's okay. Uh, if you don't have the ophthalmic erythromycin, uh, we never made an issue of it. We just went ahead and did it. But, you know, sort of the worst thing that happens to you is that you go blind. And blind is bad. <laughs> but, but, but there are worse outcomes. And with the hepatitis B vaccine, um, you know, we can talk about immunizations forever, and I'm as passionate about them as anyone can be. But uh, if you wait till two months, if you're in that situation, it's, it's not the end of the world. But vitamin K kills you or the lack of it, uh, and late bleeding. And you bleed into your head. It's not just oozing from the gums. And so they have terrible brain damage or they die. So I am, if, if I can't get them to bite on any of the three, I emphasize the vitamin K and try for that one. And of course it's necessary, the three forms of vitamin K deficiency. The late one is associated with the bleeds. It happens with this degree of frequency. And it's usually in the exclusively breastfed babe who didn't get vitamin K. It's again one of the few things you can say about formula that's actually superior to vitamin K. You don't have, it's because of the gut four, but you don't have as much late vitamin K deficiency efficiency bleeding if they avoid that. And it's becoming increasingly common. People, you know, people don't trust anyone anymore. It's not just doctors. You know, you don't trust the policeman. You don't trust the politician. You don't trust the teacher. Johnny can't read, and it's obviously the teacher's fault when you've sat him in front of the TV for 24 hours a day for the first six years of their life. Uh, and uh, we, we just live in a culture of... Uh, I'm all for skepticism. Uh, I think it's a good thing to be skeptical, but it's so easy to pass the line from being skeptical to cynical. Uh, and we live, uh, the very air we breathe is filled with cynicism, and people are cynical about medical care, and they're cynical about vitamin K. Uh, it doesn't cause leukemia, and oral vitamin K isn't acceptable. I mean, we just don't, we don't have an oral form of it here in America. You have to use the IV form. No one knows its absorption. No one knows its effectiveness. You're dependent on the family giving the vitamin K after they leave the hospital. It just on and on and on. Uh, and uh, so personally, I intellectually don't do that. 
if they want to do that, then then fine. But I'm I'm not going to prescribe something. And no one died and made me write. But I'm not going to prescribe something that has no documented effectiveness. I feel like I'm giving them tacit approval for the course that they're taking. And uh, of course, we could debate that. Sacral dimples. Uh, how many of you were taught that sacral dimples are normal if you can see the bottom of it? Yeah, it's a common little thing in medicine, isn't it? Uh, the American Academy says it doesn't mean anything uh, in their latest uh, statement on that. Uh, Janelle Abbey, who is a part of our newborn SIG from the APA and has linked with us at Arkansas, we run this wonderful teleeducation program where we link with all the physicians of Arkansas, neonatologists, pediatricians, family practitioners, every Thursday at noon, completely interactive AV. It's usually led by our own faculty, but we link with faculty all over the country. And Janelle uh, linked with us uh, because she has a special interest in sacral dimples and, and spinal dysraphism. And um, she is in the process of publishing this. But at any rate, at her presentation, she said it may actually mean something. But what we can all agree on is that the location is a huge factor. If it's located in the gluteal cleft or within an inch uh, of the anus, if it's midline and if it's tiny, then it almost certainly has no significance. And those kids don't need ultrasounds or worried parents or anything of that nature. This, we're going to get into... Uh, what is my favorite advance in newborn care over the last 10 to 15 years. I don't know how many of you have been with the situation. You know, we all try to conform to what our various bodies say. You know, if they thought that I knew more about the topic on chorioamnionitis, they'd be asking me to write the guidelines. So I have some degree of faith, or I have had, that the people who write these guidelines know more. I've actually written a technical report now, and it's given me a more uh, perspective on it that they may not know what they're talking about. But uh, at, at any rate, the CDC statement on chorioamnionitis uh, just led to all sorts of things because they very frankly said that if the mother had choreo, even if the baby looked well, the baby needed antibiotics. Well, dear Lord, I was trained by good ID doctors. And so if you're going to give somebody antibiotics, you explore their subarachnoid space uh, before you do that. So I'm tapping all these babies, I'm getting blood cultures, etc., and so forth. Uh, it just had so many unintended consequences. And uh, so what were some of the, uh, why is it uh, difficult? Well, choreo's tough if you're an obstetrician. Mama's got a temperature. Uh, you don't see an infected throat. Uh, she's in labor, so it's probably at the business end of things that's causing the fever. <laughs> so uh, it's an easy diagnosis when it has a temperature of 103 and foul-smelling fluid and a tender uterus. Okay, we can all stand before God and man and say that's choreo. But that's probably one out of 50 cases. And what's much more common is mama only has a temperature of 100.4, and they can't find any other source, and so they sort of say, well, you know, she probably has choreo. And then it's the pediatrician who needs to do things, and it gets overdiagnosed. And I'm not second-guessing my friends. My wife's an obstetrician, been happily married for 42 years. I don't want to say anything bad about obstetricians. I don't have any desire to do so anyway. Uh, but I, I would be doing the same thing if, if I were in their shoes. Well, what did it do? Well, it separates the babe from the family. It subjects the babe to painful procedures. It interferes with breastfeeding and bonding. It costs a lot 
to get admitted to an intensive care nursery and to have all these things done to you. It can mean transport to a different city if you're not somewhere that has at least a level two and potentially a level three nursery. It takes up NICU beds, and our NICU beds, we run at 100 percent old the darn time. Uh, we need to have open beds for the 24-weeker that's born, born in Jonesboro. We don't need to be sticking some baby into the nursery that doesn't need to be there. And it alters the gut flora, and does that tend to make you obese? And it just goes on and on, all the bad things that we do to these babies because of this. And I'm sure the people who wrote this statement were very intelligent and very well-meaning, but they just didn't realize what they were going to be doing to folks. And so, a new hope has dawned, and that hope comes from the Kaiser Sepsis Risk Calculator. And if you're not in general pediatrics and you're not familiar with this, I would advise you to go read this article, even if it has nothing to do with your practice, the article by Escobar, because I don't know of any piece of translational research that has had such an effect uh, I would have to go back to the Back to Sleep campaign, perhaps, to think of anything that has changed the way that we practice as much uh, as what this Kaiser Sepsis Risk Calculator. So simple, just based on some s simple maternal history, group B strep positive, did you get penicillin, how high was your fever, how long were your membranes ruptured, how does the baby appear, is he healthy looking, does he look like the wreck of the Hesperus, or is he somewhere in between? And uh, based on all those things, it gives you a little clinical score and gives you some advice on how aggressive you ought to be with the baby's workup. And in the Kaiser system, they documented an 85% decrease in the number of septic workups that they did and the number of antibiotics that they were giving to babies. We have had exactly the same experience at the University of Arkansas and Arkansas Children's Hospital. Uh, and it is my favorite quality improvement project that I've ever been a part of. Um, the uh, that just happens to be my favorite movie special effect. I still remember seeing the first Star Wars, and if you are going fast enough to blur stars, you, you are getting on down the highway. Uh, this particular article is my second favorite article that I've ever seen. And for you younger ones, if you've never read Billy Rubin 20 equals Vagentophobia, a one-act play, published in Pediatrics in 1983, you know, before civilization, the, uh, uh, it's, it's just the greatest intersection of humor and evidence-based medicine and learning that I've ever seen in an article, and I'm convinced that this 1983 article, which poked fun at the way we managed jaundice babies, led to the Academy's 1994 first statement on hyperbilirubinemia and changed our practice entirely. Well worth your while to read that. Uh, and I liked it for the same reason. It led to a sea change in clinical practice. Uh, though the uh, bilirubin vagentophobia, which is the fear of 20 if any of your minds are in the gutter. Uh, and uh, uh, this article was uh, really quite good, though it wasn't funny like vagentophobia was. Vagentophobia is still the only article I know of that 20 to 25 years later they asked the authors to write a follow-up to vagentophobia. You have to do it. No one's asked me to write a follow-up to anything I've written. <laughs> Uh, how about pacifier use for newborns? Well, there's conflicting recommendations. Of course, Baby Friendly says that you ought not do it. You're demon-possessed if you give a newborn baby <laughs> uh, a pacifier. And 
And, uh, but, you know, pacifiers, there's at least some data that shows that it decreases your chances of, of getting SIDS. And so once the breast milk is flowing like a river glorious, then, you know, perhaps at a week or two of age, it might be okay to start using a pacifier when you feel like you need to. But just don't use it too long because you can induce dental and orthodontic problems. This is my favorite myth. Uh, umbilical hernias. And I don't know that there's a question in pediatrics that I enjoy answering more than this one. Because you'll get a baby who has an umbilical hernia. And for those of you young in your training, if you don't know, if you shoot an AP film of a kid with an umbilical hernia, it looks like they swallowed a coin. I find air, air water uh, interface, I find that utterly fascinating. You won't see it on the lateral, but don't be fooled when you go to present something to your attending in the ER. The baby actually hasn't swallowed a coin. And the reason it's my favorite, it's, it's so much fun to answer parents' questions about this. The parents will ask me, Doctor, will this particular nostrum, well, it's a coin, if it's a bandage, if it's tape, you know, tape, contact dermatitis, and, and this, that. But they'll ask if various things will make an umbilical hernia go away. And, of course, what's the right answer? Uh, of course it will. I said, it'll go away if you use that. I said, it'll go away if you rubbed used motor oil on it. <laughs> I don't know why I always say that. Uh, the, I, I thought about cow manure, but... That seemed a little too coarse, so I, I always use used mortar oil. I said, it'll go away if you spend every waking moment of the baby's first year of their life trying to make it stay there. And by that time, they, I'm smiling, and they usually know what I'm about. And the punchline is, I love to treat things that get well no matter what I do because it makes me look like a smart doctor. <laughs> Uh, and the parents usually get the humor. I would guess about one in a hundred to one in two hundred uh, don't understand that I'm joking. But at, at, at any rate, the, I think the I think the the gain outweighs the pain. Uh, there's commonly confusion over the hyperbilirubinemia risk curves. You know, there's three of them, and um, some of the residents, you probably may have never seen this in print because you just pull out your billy tool or whatever and you look at it and you see it in the little fill-in-the-blank form and that type of thing. Uh, but communication, uh, uh, information can be communicated in different ways, and graphs have their virtues. And uh, so in the AAP statement, the three guide, the three areas, the risk factors, the when you start phototherapy, when you do an exchange transfusion, are all expressed in graph form. Uh, interestingly enough, and it's not the point of this confusion, it's part of the confusion, I guess, uh, you know, the risk factors are only for babies 36 weeks and up, but the phototherapy and the exchange transfusion are for babies 35 weeks and up. I don't know why they did that. It's the Committee on Confusion or something. You know, it's, it's the same committee that gave us rubella, roseola, and rubiola. You know, I don't know why they did that, just trying to keep it uh, confused in our mind. But the, other, what the real point I wanted to make with this is that many times the residents uh, and the students don't understand that all these risk factor babies had their bilirubins measured before they'd ever seen phototherapy. And so a child will be on phototherapy for a while, and the bilirubin will be down to 12, and they'll say he's now in the low-intermediate risk category. And you can't say that any more than you can say irregardless. If the baby has seen phototherapy, the risk curves go away. They're of no use to you or anybody else on the planet, though the hyperbilirubinemia decision-making points and the um, um, for both phototherapy and an exchange transfusion are still valid. 
Uh, and uh, uh, it's easy to understand. The curves all look the same when you look at them over the graph, so you would think the same thing would be true for all three curves, but it is not. Developmental hip dysplasia. Um, you know, if you look, I don't like to practice in a litigious manner. And by the way, if for some reason you guys are dissatisfied with New Hampshire, and I can't fathom what that would be, but if you are, uh, no one enjoys the practice of pediatrics more than we do in the land of opportunity. And we are always 50th in the country in malpractice. I don't think it's because the doctors of the state of Arkansas are so good. I think it's because the people of Arkansas are just not litigious. And so I'm, I'm very proud of my fellow citizens. But always on the top 10 list of things that any pediatrician or family practitioner is going to be sued over is the developmental hip dysplasia. And uh, so it's, a, you know, it's one of those things on the list of mistakes that you never want to make. It is there. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Uh, very commonly, I, I hear a hip click or I, I felt the hip click. Well, you know, hip clicks mean absolutely nothing. They don't mean any more than I don't know if you could hear that, but my knuckle popped. Uh, it's the ligamentous laxity, the same thing that gets a mother's pelvis ready to stretch uh, uh, with the junctions of the bones and everything happens to the baby's ligaments. They'll do the little pops. The pops will nearly always go away by the two-week visits, and it has no significance at all, but people will say this to you, and they'll be worried about it. Hip clicks without movement don't mean anything. And um, the two maneuvers, you know, the borrow is predicated on the fact that the hip is correctly located and you want to feel it dislocate. The ortolani is predicated on the fact that when you abduct the hip and you pull up on the greater trochanter, you feel it pop back into the hip. And uh, abnormal uh, ortolani maneuvers do carry a great deal of clinical significance, but the Barlow maneuver, which should be done very gently, it doesn't require pressing down toward the floor, that type of thing, really doesn't mean a whole lot unless it persists for about a month. And so after a month, if you still get a positive borrow, it's probably worth sending them to the orthopedic surgeon. Uh, but uh, it, it's certainly something that should be done, but it's just not as significant. Uh, it's much less predictive of a serious problem than the ortolani. And another myth is the AAP has never specified when you get an ultrasound uh, for a baby with a breech presentation. And in fact, I changed this slide about three weeks ago because when I wrote this up, uh, I, I wrote this thing first probably in 86, oh no, no, probably in, no, no, I probably wrote the thing in uh, 2005 or six. And the, um, um, and so I update it with new myths whenever I'm going to give it again. Uh, it was always a frustration because when does the breach matter? You know, uh, if he was breached but they were able to flip the baby before delivery and he presents uh, with a vertex presentation, does that mean anything? Uh, if he flips spontaneously, does that mean anything? If he had a C-section and didn't pass through the birth canal, uh, is that a better situation than the baby who has passed through the birth canal? Well, the AAP has finally come out and said that in the new statement, which was published in December, Hello. Did I mess you guys up there? My screen changed. At any rate, 
the new statement says the third trimester is a definite risk factor. If I've messed something up with the presentation here, somebody come up and fix it. <laughs> uh, the, uh, even other 63-year-olds make fun of me for my lack of computer skills. I really, despite my involvement in telemedicine, I do not like computers. I don't trust them. They smell fear when I approach. <laughs> The, uh, and then, you know, there are all the myths around umbilical cord vessels and tags in the kidneys. And so if a baby with a two-vessel cord, you have to be concerned they're going to have some sort of kidney anomaly. Or they've got a preauricular pit or tag, and you know, that's associated with kidney problems. Well, no thank you. Thanks for pulling the feud, but that's not really true. Uh, in, a, in an otherwise healthy baby who doesn't have any other anomalies, it has no more significance than the hip click, and everyone should have a good day and avoid renal ultrasounds as much as they can. Uh, newborn emesis is an indication for a formula change. Well, you know, uh, don't, don't you love it when parents come in and say, my baby has reflux? Yeah. You know? Well, of course they do. They are alive. <laughs> Every baby spits up. And when you say, my baby has reflux, you've done no more than say that my baby's heart is beating. <laughs> they all have reflux. Parents don't understand that because we haven't. It's our fault. Parents aren't stupid. We've just done a really bad job of educating them as to what reflux is. And personally, I hate gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, one of the uglier acronyms I've ever heard in my life. So I prefer to think of it in terms of pathologic and physiologic gastroesophageal reflux and forget the D. Um, and it, it can be a manifestation of milk allergy, but you know, as I understand how allergies work, you have to be presented, this, this when I went to medical school, you needed an antigen presented to you. And it took 10 to 14 days to build the antibody to the antigen. And then once that happened, you know, you could get down to business. Well, the baby hasn't seen formula for 10 to 14 days, and I'm sorry, in the first 24 hours of life, I just don't believe that you can diagnose an allergy to formula. And um, so uh, don't, let that, uh, don't let that worry you. I thought I may have messed up my slides here. You know, just uh, the, the things that make uh, vomiting pathological, spitting up blood, uh, spitting up and having obstructive apnea so, so badly that somebody wants to do a code on you, you turn blue and that sort of thing, <laughs> recurrent aspiration pneumonia, failure to thrive, um, Sandifer syndrome where they do the little fencing thing. Um, uh, asthma exacerbations in older people. And, and none of these have anything to do with numbers. Uh, you can spit up 10 to 15 to 20 times a day for the first six months of life. Thank you, Timothy Brian Burke, my second born. Uh, and, and, there, and be absolutely normal, and you can spit up two or three times a day and have obstructive apnea every time you spit up, and you are abnormal. Well, let's go on to uh, contraindications to breastfeeding. Moms who are febrile can't breastfeed, right? Wrong. There's only four infectious disease reasons not to breastfeed. The first one's active untreated tuberculosis. And unlike in cows, which we screen for TB so that the tuberculosis, uh, bovine tuber tubercular, whatever it is, doesn't get transferred over to humans, uh, uh, humans don't do that. Uh, it's the mother coughing 
that exposes the baby to the TB. So uh, she needs to be on her TB meds for two weeks before uh, you think about breastfeeding. Uh, HIV positive, and if you get HIV, if you remember that one, then it's kind of a two-for-one coupon because the human T-cell lymphotropic virus types one and two, which happen in the Caribbean, and I think they're associated with cervical tumors or something of that nature, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and then a herpes simplex lesion that's located on the breast. And those are the only infectious disease reasons, not mastitis or anything else in the world, uh, that you should have a baby avoid breastfeeding. And uh, other infectious diseases, hepatitis B surface antigen positive. Well, you know, we have the immunization now, and thank God for that. But how about hepatitis C? Well, Dr. Burke, any dummy would think, you know, uh, a baby whose mother is positive for hepatitis C shouldn't breastfeed because he's going mother's nipple's going to crack, and he's going to swallow blood and be exposed to it that way. And isn't that an awful thing? But the, the deal is, if, if here at Dartmouth, y'all get a patient, a baby who acquires hepatitis C through breastfeeding, you need to write it up because it will be the first one in the history of the world. It doesn't matter if you're breastfed or bottle fed, 5% of newborns whose mothers have hepatitis C are going to go on and, and become carriers for hepatitis C themselves. So it's no reason to do it. Uh, I'm, I know the physiology is not accurate, but the way that I think about it is the process of delivery is terribly bloody, whether it's vaginal or cesarean. Baby swallows a lot of the mother's blood, gets in the nose, the eyes everywhere else in the world and the dose of blood that they get just from being delivered is so high compared to the minuscule amount of blood that they might get from a cracked nipple that it probably doesn't make any difference. You know, it's, it's kind of like somebody shot you with a gun and then they kicked you in the shins. Well, <laughs> kicking you in the shins didn't really you know, help you along, but in the whole scheme of things, it, it really doesn't have any effect. And uh, uh, it, the AAP says, so I put it here, that you need to discuss the transmission uh, with uh, the mother and family, but it's never been documented. And CMV positive mothers have term babies. I'll defer to the neonatologist. If you start getting down to 30 weeks or so, uh, it can become a different uh, kettle of fish, but that's beyond my knowledge base. Uh, now, I'm not in favor of smoking and drinking, uh, smoking at all and drinking to excess, uh, but tobacco smoking is not a reason to avoid breastfeeding. Now, you don't want mama puffing on the unfiltered cigarette while the baby is breastfeeding, but if she will go outside of the house to smoke in between breastfeedings, the advantages of the breastfeeding far outweigh whatever little bit of toxins may get transmitted from the mother's system through the breast milk to the baby. Uh, alcohol consumption. Now, mama doesn't need to be blotto and unable to walk, you know, like they are in New Orleans for Mardi Gras and that type of thing. But if you're reasonable about things uh, and you avoid breastfeeding for an hour or two after you have consumed this much alcohol, you really can. Be careful with craft beer. Some of them have a higher content of alcohol. Transition nurseries. Lord, uh, you know, uh, when I went into practice, every baby was taken from the mother to the transition nursery because, uh, you know, what's this rooming in thing? And uh, we don't want to miss anything, do we? Uh, that should never happen. Babies should be put in direct contact with their mother and should latch to the breast. And, you know, uh, up until five to six years ago, we were awful at this at the university hospital. One of my small contributions since I've been back, I came back in 04, uh, is, you know, the warmer. You're in the delivery room, and there's the warmer, right? And warmers are wonderful things. If you have a sick, apneic baby, 
and you need to do some resuscitation and you don't want him turning into an ice cube while you're doing the resuscitation, a warmer is at the right level, you can intubate, it's a great thing. But for a healthy baby, warmers make no sense at all. Mama's the warmer. And the baby should be taken even on a C-section delivery and put to the mother's breast and, and let the mother breastfeed. But that's not what we do. And I'll guarantee you there are hundreds, thousands of nurseries in the country that still do not do this, what I think of as correctly. And I don't know why. It's uh, the warmer's electronic. It looks medical, mystical. It glows. Uh, you know, it's just, obviously, who would not take advantage of this wonderful tool? But in this situation, it is not a wonderful tool. Uh, the, the mother should be the heat source, and we ought to delay doing things that feel bad to the baby at least until the first breastfeeding is completed. You know, there are some nurseries, and I, I don't know if you guys are one of the nurseries, I was reading about it in our newborn sick, that don't even do circumcisions in the hospital. They, won't, they are so dedicated to breastfeeding, and I, I don't know if the data supports them being right, but I admire the passion. Uh, as they will not circumvent in the hospital, they'll send him home and bring him back at three, five, seven days of age once breastfeeding has really been established. And they have a clinic where they do the circumcisions at that point in time. They serve a different population base than I do because I would never be able to get them back uh, with any sort of, uh, in any sort of reliable fashion. But, uh, and the baby needs to stay with the mother all the time. And I've been with them for nine months. There's no sense in leaving today. Uh, and then let's get over to hydronephrosis. Now, my favorite way of being told about a baby potentially having hydronephrosis is walking up to a mother and she told me that my baby's got water on his kidneys. <laughs> And I said, well, hmm, wonder what the heck that means. But then it uh, come to find out she was worried about either hydronephrosis pyelectasis or pelviectasis. And, you know, if you go to study the literature, it's just really frustrating. They should just use one word. And, you know, hydronephrosis has the connotation of disease. If you say a baby's got hydronephrotic kidneys, he's in bad shape. If you look up the definition, hydronephrosis does not mean abnormal. Uh, it just means a little bit dilated, and you have your grade ones that are insignificant and that type of thing. But conversationally, the connotation is something's the matter. Uh, and many babies, uh, we call these labomas in Arkansas. Uh, the lab shows you something, and it's scary, but it's not really a disease. And, uh, but what's normal and what's not normal? And all we ever hear is that the kidneys are dilated or something like that. And so lots of kids are getting VCUGs and ultrasounds that don't need them. Um, what we use, uh, and this is one of the Peds Place guidelines, as a part of our Peds Place Educational Conference, we write 10 guidelines every year, peer-reviewed, sent out for two people to look at it like a journal article, updated by the author every year. You can find them at angelsguidelines.com. You can even put the little app here on your thing. You can't remember how much D10 to give to somebody with a newborn with a blood sugar of 22. We got your back. <laughs> uh, and so if you have unilateral pelvic dilation uh, of, of this, this amount greater than four millimeters, it's not such a big deal. Repeat it later on in the pregnancy. Uh, and if it's not greater than 10 millimeters, then the baby doesn't have hydronephrosis. If it is greater than 10 millimeters and it is unilateral, then check it out at seven days of age. Uh, ultrasounds 
can be done in the nursery, but they're inferior. Uh, you will not as reliably pick up on hydrodephrotic kidneys. Uh, if you have a, a family that you trust can bring the baby back and that sort of thing, then doing it at seven days is superior. If you have a family that lives three hours from where you are in difficulty with transportation, you sometimes have to do things you don't want to do. Um, and then if you do see hydronephrosis, then you do need an, uh, a VCUG. Now, when both kidneys are dilated, things you ratchet up the degree of concern. And especially with oligohydramnios at this gestational age, uh, you, you need to be very concerned. But without, without oligohydramnios, then just repeating the ultrasound every two to three weeks is fine. And if the renal pelvic uh, uh, dilation is greater than 10 millimeters, then you need to get them evaluated quickly, both with an ultrasound and a VCUG, especially if you have a boy and you're worried about posterior urethral valves. And you begin prophylactic amoxicillin at birth. This is what we do at the University of Arkansas. Uh, the several difficulties with what I've told you. Uh, number one, it's hard to get the information. You know, the obstetricians are good about telling us that the mom is positive with RPR because we've talked to them about it and uh, they put it there and it's, it, the information is easily accessible. But we haven't taught the family practitioners and the obstetricians delivering the babies that we need this information and so they're not quite as good about letting us know. And the real trouble is there's no nationally accepted standard for what you ought to do. And therefore, everything that I've told you may be entirely wrong. Uh, and if you have a better approach to it, I would love to hear it uh, and potentially uh, think of using it in our, in our own nursery. It's a source of frustration, uh, but uh, I am convinced that we're medicalizing these people and treating, many times, we're treating normal people as if they are sick when they are not. And then umbilical cord care, also it's certainly in my pantheon of favorites. Uh, all sorts of ablutions are used to prevent infections, and I use ablutions in the religious sense of the term because it's, it's like you're dabbing on holy water uh, or something to prevent the baby from getting umphalitis. Lots of things used. Antiseptics are used. Dyes are used. We use triple dye, which, you know, has great special effects. <laughs> that bright purple color, you know, obviously it has to be doing something good. It's got the peroxide factor. You know, peroxide is so great you pour it on something, it bubbles. The, the doctor must really be doing something, and this is powerful medicine. Uh, and antibiotics have been put on cords, too, to prevent it. But uh, look at the Cochrane Collective. This uh, second, hello, how is your mama? Uh, is this acceptable? I think this is where it was before I tested the screen the first time. Yeah. All right, good deal. Uh, the, um, they smell fear when I approach. Uh, in the January issue of Pediatrics, there was an article on dry care versus antibiotics from umbilical cord care. And uh, now this is different in developing countries, perhaps. We really don't have enough data, you know, where you don't have sterile things. But home delivery may carry a greater risk. And so you have to be careful. And this slide is so apropos that as this has New Orleans and uh, now with Mardi Gras going on. And the people of New Orleans, if you've not been there, uh, the folks know how to have a good time. It doesn't have to be Mardi Gras. And this is uh, home, home delivery, I think, is for pizza. And underwater birth is for whales. Uh, now, that said, I don't want any of you getting mad at me. 
because, you know, home delivery is becoming much more common across America. I've actually looked this up, and I forget the exact dates, but something like if you compare 2000 with 2010, uh, a half of a percent, one in 200 kids in America was delivered at home. And in 2010, it's one in 100, so the rate has doubled. And in some states, Alaska, it's like 6%. Uh, travel things, you can see that. But primarily the states that do a lot of home delivery are the states on our west and east coasts. Uh, it isn't so common uh, in flyby areas. And there's all sorts of reasons for doing that. People's suspicion of medical care, the expense of it. My son just had uh, a grand, uh, his wife had a grandchild for us, a child for them, <laughs> and uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and their bill for a woman with no risk factors and a healthy woman and a healthy baby, everything that it took for their pregnancy was $20,000. And if anybody can explain to me why taking care of normal people for a normal process costs $20,000, then I'm available for coffee afterwards. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, people are voting with their pocketbooks. They may even want to deliver in the hospital. But if you don't have insurance and somebody's going to stick you with a $20,000 bill, then you know, in this audience, you know, we're rich, we're doctors, we're certainly wealthy. I mean, anybody who thinks they're a doctor and they're not wealthy, they just have a bad, then they don't think they're wealthy, they just have a bad perspective on life. Uh, but, uh, you know, we could pay $20,000. But it kind of depends on how much you have in the bank, doesn't it? Uh, if you don't, if your net worth is not $20,000, then having a delivery in the hospital, you know, it starts to get your attention. And how about you? Uh, $20,000, you'll pay it? Mm, how about thirty? How about fifty? How about $120,000? At what point do you break and say, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm going to have a baby at home. Uh, and so uh, lots of women, for various and sundry reasons, um, distrust of society at large, distrust of the medical care system, expense, etc., uh, want to have their babies at home. And, uh, and a good argument can be made for it. Uh, and I've given you a couple of articles that uh, at the bottom that make that argument. Uh, and they do it in England all the time. And if you have a completely low-risk mother, especially if she's had one baby and has what the obstetricians call a proven pelvis, and she wants to deliver a baby at home, it's probably just fine. Uh, but the trouble is, in England, they have this great referral mechanism. And I'm not aware of any referral mechanisms uh, in Arkansas or Michigan, the two places that I have practiced. You get into trouble at home, it's just a 911 call when somebody shows up that doesn't know what to do with a newborn baby, et cetera, et cetera. And so we don't have that situation in America. Um, and the hard, cold stats are that home delivery is a bit more dangerous. Now, I'm forgetting the exact numbers. Let me just make something up. If one in 10,000 babies die uh, in a hospital delivery, than 1.3 and 10,000 die in a home delivery in these low-risk environments or whatever. So, quote, it is more dangerous, but it's not a whole lot more dangerous, and you can understand why somebody might choose it. And uh, those two previous slides, I, I, you know, uh, <laughs> pardon me, but uh, you get, I don't care where you are on this side of the debate. If you don't think that's funny, then I'm worried about you. <laughs> Uh, hepatitis B vaccination at birth. Well, you know, many parents think it's unneeded. And especially if they're an older parent, uh, uh, well, but I'm sorry, I'm going out of order here. They think it uh, might be given too soon. It might make their child a ear. It can interfere with breastfeeding, lessen bonding, 
too young to be effective. And you know, we caused some of this because uh, up until 2010, the Academy said the first hepatitis B can be given from birth to two months. Since 2010, uh, we've said that it should be given at birth. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, and um, uh, it's dramatically effective, and uh, the cirrhosis and the hepatocellular carcinoma and everything that goes on with that is a bad thing. Uh, parents uh, don't like the back-to-sleep campaign, some of them. He's going to choke. And we forget sometimes to do this with anticipatory guidance, and sometimes babies with BPD or difficult oxygenation might be kept on their stomach because some people feel that air exchange happens a little better that way. But uh, we need to explain that to parents, and the evidence is quite clear, the back-to-sleep campaign has cut the SIDS rate in half, and we ought to do that. Uh, gone too far, haven't I? Uh, I've got to keep him in the front seat so I can see if he's choking. That's easy to understand, but wrong. Um, I'm not going to cover the circumcision because I want to go ahead to one slide to finish up. I've uh, been having too good a time here with you guys, and I've let myself go too long. Uh, I can tell when a baby is jaundiced. You know, we used to discharge when I went into practice, 72 hours of age, vaginal, five days if you were a C-section delivery. Kids are getting jaundiced, are going home quicker, and you can't tell if they're jaundiced as well. Um, We've talked about the babies with reflux. I won't go over that. In my last uh, three slides, iron and formula causes innumerable things. Uh, and everything that iron does, there are no known medical contraindications to iron and formula. And what iron and formula doesn't cause, teething causes. I don't know if you can read these cartoons. I love them. Uh, watching teething babies is like watching over a thermonuclear reactor, best done in shifts by well-rested people. Uh, and teething causes everything else. Well, you know, you can occasionally find wisdom in unexpected places, and I'm hoping that this is going to play for you because it's 38 seconds of Chris Rock without cussing, which may be the longest recorded stretch of Mr. Rock <laughs> without cussing. Yeah, here we go. Well, how can I get out of this? It's not going forward. Can some? Can you help me get to my last slide? Thank you. All right. The, there's an old Arkansas saying, and this is my last slide. I didn't take Latin. I don't know this pronunciation. Of course, I wonder if anyone does, since it's a dead, lat, a dead language. But aliquando etiam acesus porci invented glande, which is the translation for sometimes even a blind hog finds an acre. <laughs> Uh, and if I've helped you a little bit today, then this old blind hog is happy about it. And I'd love to answer any questions you might have. One yes. question from Bob. Goodbye. Thank you, Bill. But um, I just wanted to say that I 
wanted to make a, a comment and then ask a question. So the active untreated tuberculosis in breastfeeding is definitely a contraindication for direct breastfeeding, that the mom can express her milk and have another provider give it to breast milk. No, no question about that. Dr. Whalen points out that the mother can pump her breast milk while she's being treated for the TB, and that pump breast milk can be used. It's just that the baby shouldn't be put straight to the breast. So you're starting off with exclusive breastfeeding and talking about also the provider impact in terms of introducing formula and decreasing breastfeeding duration. That's been shown even just the first couple of days of life. And the provider attitude towards exclusive breastfeeding or having a non-neutral attitude towards formula is really um, promotes exclusive breastfeeding as well. It's very powerful. Does not impact breastfeeding. Has an impact. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, you were talking about your use of language last night. Um, but I just wanted to know if you could talk to the residents or just speak to them about how you would counsel a mom if she asked to give formula because she was worried she didn't have. Well, uh, let me go into what I, I frequently tell them. It is common that the mothers at 24 hours of age feel a little defeated. And they'll have this sort of hangdog expression and say, you know, my breast milk hasn't come in yet. You know, as if they are inferior, as if they are stupid or unskilled, and that type of thing. And for some reason, it's their fault that their breast milk hasn't come in. And the, you know, and I tell them, I say, it's not your fault. That's the way the system is designed. I said, I don't care who you are, Queen Elizabeth, Mrs. Obama. Uh, I need to change presidents, don't I? But uh, at, at any rate, uh, no woman is going to have a large volume of breast milk come in in the first 24 hours. It's utterly impossible. And I go in and I talk to them about the weight loss. I said, you know, all babies lose about 10% of their birth weight or at least up to 10% uh, when they're born. Most of this is water loss, and it's the only time in life that I know of where overhydration is normal because babies, if you will, are born overhydrated. They have too much water in them. And if they weren't overhydrated and the breast didn't put out anything in terms of large volumes of water, we're not talking about colostrum or that type of thing, by the time two to three days of age got here, which is when breast milk typically starts flowing, they would be dehydrated because they would be peeing off from a, a normally hydrated state and it would take so long. As it is, they're overhydrated. And by two to three days of age, they're getting to the point where they start needing some water, which is right about the point that the breast milk kicks in, and it's rather marvelously well-coordinated and designed, and you don't need to be worried about this. You're doing as good a job as any woman in the world can do. That's what I say. <laughs> Thank you for your help with the screen.